across the board, there continues to be a domination of colonial forms of knowledge production in general, you know, full stop. And yet this traditional way of conducting research does not actually speak to the needs of marginalized groups. Um, it doesn't even solve any of their social problems. That really was the case as well for the population that I mean, I'm continuously studying. So looking at asylum seekers, refugees, LGBT persons, people of color, black people, Africans. Welcome to Decolonization Action, a podcast that considers how knowledge, medicine, science, and the arts are being decolonized today. My name is Edna Bonhomme, and I'm broadcasting from Berlin, Germany. You are listening to Season 2, Episode 6, where I spoke with Sky Tenevimbo Sharape about decolonizing forensic psychology, migration, and research practices. Skye was born in Zimbabwe and is a forensic scholar and doctor candidate at the University of Cape Town, South Africa. Her research provisionally titled The Hare and the Baboon, Human Insecurity, Migration and Victimization of African LGBT Asylum Seekers in the Context of the UK Asylum Interview Process, investigates broader issues around structural violence and the ongoing conversation on the politics of migration and borders of gender and sexuality. Skye is also a part-time lecturer and a member of the Hub Decolonial Feminist Psychologies in Africa at the University of Cape Town. Sky's academic and community work has focused on the conversation of decolonizing work on trauma, healing, justice, collective healing, and holding space within Black LGBTQI community movements. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. No, thank you very much for having me. I'm really, really humbled to, you know, to be contributing and having this conversation with you. The novel coronavirus known as COVID-19 is a pandemic which is resulting in a reshuffling of society. I want to ask, what are you learning and unlearning during this period? Yeah, oh my goodness, Um, a lot. I'm also one of those people who's who's also currently in in constant reflection about this. And I... And also going through the, you know, a lot of like learning and unlearning um, that also other people are also, you know, going through. But I would say that, you know, for me, I think a lot of my learning and unlearning process actually began the moment that I located to Cape Town to study, you know, about a year ago. And having been based in the UK for the last 18 years, um, you know, doing my undergraduate as well as my master's studies, as well having received like so much harm um, in the form of, you know, racism, institutional racism, you know, toxic um, interpersonal relationships. Um, we have also adopted, you know, some toxic, you know, relationships with the self. There's been a lot of unlearning, you know, that is needed to be done, you know, when I arrived in Cape Town. Uh, so in particular, I noticed that being in the UK for so long, I'd picked up, you know, um, you know, a number of problematic Western ways of viewing the world, but also of viewing myself, you know, within the world. Um, so, you know, for myself in particular, you know, so my formative and adolescent years were spent in Zimbabwe, uh, but a stint, you know, of that, you know, of my adult years we spent in the UK. And I feel like the UK left a dent on, on you know, on the self. Um, and through that, I've also adopted, you know, um, unhealth ways of being, you know, of navigating the world and of thinking. And so I feel like right now, you know, now being back on the continent of Africa, particularly being based in, you know, um, 
Uska being based in Cape Town, I'm going through, you know, a process of actually decolonizing my own mind, you know, and I do, and I do know, you know, that, you know, uh, decolonizing one's mind is actually, is a lifelong process, but I feel like I'm really actively learning right now, like what it really means to let go, uh, for example, of this need, you know, that I've had for so long being in the UK, you know, to articulate uh, myself, you know, for example, seemingly like in the language of the colonizer, so I've been doing a lot of reading, you know, and listening and trying to think more in my own vernacular language, for example. Um, you know, I've been doing a lot of trying to learn, you know, more local African languages. Um, you know, when I was in the UK, I felt policed a lot, you know, about my own blackness. Um, you know, and I also felt policed about the you know the places that I navigated for example I felt you know policed by racism you know I felt really judged and I felt you know I could also you know sense myself also judging myself you know as a result of this so I've been doing a lot of letting go and shedding of this and kind of unlearning you know certain western cultural expressions and western ways of knowing and thinking um and I think a lot of this unlearning and learning for me has come about because I'm currently at a stage where I feel really thin, you know, and, and I feel really validated, um, not so much for my achievements or qualifications, which was, you know, which seemed to be the case, you know, in, in the UK. I'd be like, okay, you know, you're black, but then, oh, you're also a forensic psychologist. And then suddenly, you know, people kind of, they see you. Um, but I feel like in South Africa, that's not really the case. It's not about how popular I am or not popular or how I look, you know, visibly. And, but it's really about, you know, just being me as a human being. So I feel really seen. Um, but on top of that, you know, um, South Africa has, I've been a, a learning a lot about the ways in which folks in South Africa organize, for example. There are so many decolonial or decolonization movements that are very visible, you know, in South Africa, particularly, you know, being visible on campuses. And I think, you know, in practice um, and even in theory and thought, I feel like, you know, natural, I think the UK, I feel, you know, is really um, behind in this. But there's a lot of this that is really happening. So I feel like, you know, in South Africa, so I feel like I'm really learning also new liberating perspective um you know in practice which i'm finding to be quite enriching for myself and also for my studies and currently there have been quite a lot of you know solidarity movements that have really sprung up in response to this tragedy and i've never seen anything like this you know um movements that are serving communities, you know, serving the city, like on a, on a, such a broader scale. And, you know, there's a huge sense of collectiveness. And, and I think, you know, with South Africa historically, because if you look at the movements that were erected during apartheid, you know, which is not so long ago, I suppose, you know, in the recent movements at university campuses around, you know, the roads must fall, fees must fall, and what have you. I've been observing, you know, how South Africans are really good at running and organizing and, you know, and being in solidarity with others. Um, and lately, especially like currently, you know, there's a lot of organizing around um, collective care, you know, around food security, around alternative, you know, ways of learning, you know, for students online that are really equitable and responsive to students. This whole new model of comradeship, you know, that I'm learning to be a part of, which is very different as opposed to you know being in community I think with some because I felt sometimes quite isolated even if I was part of the community in the UK. 
Your intellectual journey is multinational and you seem to have engaged in learning and unlearning that also reflects your positionality shifts from the British context where you used to live to the South African context where you currently live. One thing I want to touch upon is your disciplinary training, the field of forensic psychology, a discipline that provides expertise in a legal or justice system. Your entry point to this field was through your experience with the British immigration system. Can you share how that personal journey relates to your intellectual journey in forensic psychology? Yes, you know, my area of specialism is forensic psychology. I completed my master's um, in forensic psychology in the UK and worked for the criminal justice system for at least seven to, you know, for at least seven years, three years of which were as a trainee forensic psychology. But then I was forced to leave that training because of racism. And that time was really challenging and traumatic. But I'll come back to that and maybe, you know, it's a, it's in a little bit more detail if there's time. But yes, you know, so in a nutshell, forensic psychology is basically, you know, the application of clinical specialities in the legal arena or, you know, or in other ways, you know, the application of clinical psychology to forensic settings. My entry point to this field was not really um, necessarily through the experiences, you know, with the British immigration system as such. I, you know, I think, you know, these experiences, you know, with the immigration system, they came a little bit later, but they're still connected, you know, in some ways. I come from an academic kind of, you know, creative family background. So, you know, so I kind of really knew early on in some ways, you know, that I was also going to follow the same path, I suppose. All these people in Zimbabwe who were, you know, um, some relations or extended families, you know, were very academic, had had achieved, you know, a lot of scholarship. And for example, you know, my uncle, one of my uncles, you know, was actually the first black barrister in the then sort of like under um, Rhodesia, Zimbabwe. So I had a lot of, you know, family members who were educated outside and they came back and would take up arms um, to war, you know, to fight, you know, to the colonialists. So I was really influenced a lot by, you know, by those people. But I realized during my A-levels, while I was in high school, when I was in Zimbabwe, when I had an opportunity to volunteer, you know, with, with, with the children's home, um, that it really dawned on me that I wanted to take on a career closely linked to being of service to people or to being of service to my community because I really saw the ways in which I was able to connect with people and being able to put people at ease I suppose you know maybe in a way that is healing although the word healing was not the word that I would have used then I made a conscious decision to study psychology actually around 2005 in the UK. So I began my first degree in the UK. And then it was when I was doing my first degree that I stumbled upon my, you know, my first um, in forensic psychologist who happened to be a white woman and she was doing a lot of community work. And then it was through her, you know, and my relationship with her, you know, and so my friendship with her that I learned, um, you know, of the overrepresentation of black men and men of color in the UK prison service. So I naively thought at the time that maybe I could do something about this. So I became really interested in forensic psychology then. So I knew that I wanted to do this. However, I had um, a difficult, so I couldn't carry on with my master's because the home office had withheld my passport and was continuing to withhold my passport. And in fact, they would they withheld my passport for almost six years, Edna. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, my university, you know, they tried to reason with them, you know, to get the passport because I needed it for my studies, for my internship. The Home Office, you know, um, did not respond. I went through lots of um, MPs, local councillors. And I remember it was also the time of um, Tony Blair. I went through number 10 through Tony Blair at the time and, you know, to no success. I ended up having to take the home office to court 
and represent myself and really taking them to task soon after they had, you know, threatened to actually deport me back home. Soon after this, then I then started my master's as a forensic psychology. So that's really sort of like how my journey, you know, was connected to the immigration system and connected, you know, to my knowledge in, in kind of hearing a little bit more about the criminal justice system. But then I suppose, you know, the immigration system in the UK is also still part and parcel of um, the criminal justice system as well. Um, so that's sort of like kind of how my journey in forensic psychology is kind of linked to that. I'm sorry to hear that you had such a negative experience with the home office and the trauma that it produced, especially since immigration restrictions can also have a negative impact on how one moves and lives in, in this world. Given your expertise, I want to ask your opinion about the relationship between detention, trauma, and psychology. You published a text in the edited volume, The Color of Madness, exploring Black, Asian, and minority ethnic mental health in the UK, and your contribution was entitled, quote, He was treated like a criminal, evaluating the impact of detention-related trauma on LGBTQI, end quote. Can you describe how you came about conducting this research, your findings, and how the intersections of racialized oppression and sexuality shaped mental health in Britain? So it was really, you know, at this time when my passport was withheld and specifically then when I was detained by the British immigration system, when they were threatening to deport me. I was only detained, you know, because I'm aware that there are a lot of, lots of other people who've been detained for much longer, you know, for weeks, months, you know, and sometimes even years. I was only detained for about 48 hours. Uh, But, you know, but during this experience of detention, I really truly experienced and was really exposed you know, to the other dark side of immigration processes and the harms of detention. I'd never seen anything like this. And I became aware you know, of the different ways in which you know, this form of violence you know, was really nuanced and was destroying humanity in asylum seekers and refugees. So it was a couple of months following you know, this experience of detention that my master's program began. But when it came to choosing a research question to interrogate, you know, for my master's research, I then really went out of my way to actually think about research ideas that were not traditionally you know, accepted, for example, in forensic psychology discipline. So I began to reflect on what I'd witnessed you know, and experienced in the British asylum system and the impact really this had on me. As you can probably hear, you know, I still have a stammer and this is actually a stammer from then from my period in detention, as well as from my experiences of working for the criminal justice system. So I thought to myself that if this was the harm that I was noticing in my own body and the trauma that I was noticing in my own body after only being detained for 48 hours, and alongside that, when I was in detention, I was already an activist with lots of support. I was also going through this intellectual journey. I knew my rights and what have you. I was articulate enough to even represent myself in court. I had a lot of support from my community, and it's probably one of the reasons why you know I was released after 48 hours but then I thought if I could leave detention and I'm not able to sleep with the lights off I am stammering I'm experiencing this trauma related symptoms what about other people who've been there for long these experiences for me they forced me to take notice um, and then I also realized that actually in forensic psychology hardly any of the forensic psychology or any forensic psychologists were making any efforts at all to to research this population. Also, people who were doing the research were not really doing research that could actually bring about any social or political or structural change. 
And then on top of that is what the few psychologists were doing, you know, similar research were either mostly white, you know, very privileged, and then often dehumanizing, you know, African you know, asylum seekers, but often just really dehumanizing or asylum seekers and refugees, you know, that they were coming across in their research or that they were using, you know, in their research. So I took it upon myself, you know, then to respond to some of these issues and decided to particularly focus on black and people of color asylum seekers because it was not traditional forensic psychology, even though a lot of people were experiencing detention, which is, you know, a forensic setting, so arguably is forensic psychology. I actually had to fight, you know, to do the research. Um, in some way, I had to argue why I should be doing the research. For my research, then I went on and explored detention and asylum seekers, kind of looking at the criminalization of asylum seekers in the UK by the UK media, because also around the time of the so-called migrant crisis. And then I also looked at the experiences of double displacement, focusing on issues around home, what home means, you know, home, exile and alienation, acculturation and belonging. In general, the primary aim of the research was to examine personal constructs that LGBT refugees actually created you know, for themselves you know, to remain resilient to the trauma of detention. A lot of things came up. I was examining a lot of the narratives that participants had shared with me. It was really, really heartbreaking. I collected so much data and a lot of it, I ended up not even using it. I ended up having a study that was equivalent to a PhD study. And a lot of people had never had an opportunity to actually speak to anyone about the experiences. They'd not had any you know, mental health support. So I ended up creating a platform where people could share. So a lot of people were sharing about their situation, about really feeling disabled by the system, lo losing their free will and autonomy as human beings, and just feeling really, really mentally defeated, struggling to understand and articulate, you know, the experiences, which in terms of like, you know, might also result also in numbing and mental death, what some people might call mental death. Also, I did a qualitative research. So there was a lot of themes that came up as a result of that. But one thing that really was prominent was that post-detention, people were mainly just put in back into the community and there was no post-care. There seemed to be a lot of barriers to accessing as well as negotiating with the mental health services. So there was no post-care a lot of the times. And, and this was really concerning for me. So that's how I ended up doing this research because I really wanted to highlight that. The research made a bit of a compelling case for policy as well as to show how detention really has such extreme and also detrimental effects on the mental health of LGBTI asylum seekers, but also making points you know, for the need to re-evaluate and improve the way asylum seekers are treated by the system, but then also after they've been put back in the community. Now, there's so many other organizations, so the Micro Rainbow Organization, as well as the African Equality Support Group, who offering, you know, post-care, you know, for asylum seekers. But at the time, these organizations were not really that many. Your current PhD research is looking at human insecurity, migration, and the victimization of African LGBT asylum seekers in the context of the UK system. You're currently earning a PhD in South Africa at the University of Cape Town, where you're deeply engaged in decolonial work. Decoloniality is an expansive term that can engage with repatriation of stolen objects, reshuffling of political power, and challenging knowledge structures. How do you define decoloniality? What does it mean to conduct decolonial psychology research on the African continent? Well, what is really interesting, you know, with that question is that actually, besides my own self-driven reading and conversations in the UK, decoloniality and decolonization were never really part of my curriculum at all when I studied psychology in the UK at all. 
So even though, you know, I deliberately and intentionally engaged, you know, with liberatory practices, it was actually often, actually not even often, it was always outside of the syllabus. And it was always driven by my own personal experiences and experiences of my community. And it was always driven by what I knew and what I'd experienced and what I was seeing my community to experience. So a lot of my learning to actually, you know, theorize this practice, I've actually adopted when then I relocated, you know, to the University of Cape Town, where I am a member of the hub, you know, for decolonial feminist psychologies. Across the board, there continues to be a domination of colonial forms of knowledge production in general, you know, full stop. And yet this traditional way of conducting research does not actually speak to the needs of marginalized groups. Um, it doesn't even solve any of their social problems. That really was the case as well for the population that, I mean, I'm continuously studying. So looking at asylum seekers, refugees, LGBT persons, people of color, black people, Africans. In the context of my work, the project of decoloniality for me refers to a movement a movement which focuses on untangling this production of knowledge from a primarily Eurocentric epistemy. For me, this movement may include you know, forms of critical theory. This movement gained in some liberatory and decolonial thinking. And this movement will be looking at the process of thinking and doing and questioning as well as problematizing the histories of power that are often emerging, you know, from Europe or that have often, you know, emerged, you know, from colonialism. Well, what does it mean then for me to engage this decolonial work on the African continent? So in terms of like thinking in relation to my intellectual work, when I'm thinking about decolonial literature, I feel like, you know, it's a literature that invites us. And when I say us, and I mean, you know, as African scholars to approach this knowledge production from our own standpoint and using our standpoint as the first step towards decolonization and the decolonization of our own minds. And I think for me, this also means employing concepts of Africanity as theoretical lenses, drawing attention to the significance of working from the standpoint of Africa and the African experience. So this is for me, you know, what it really means. What you're pointing out too is that decoloniality is an ongoing practice. It's collective. It's rethinking how knowledge is taught and understood and paying special attention to the power of histories that were Eurocentric and what power that has in reproducing hierarchies of knowledge. Undoing some of those disciplinary inequalities in universities today is an ongoing process that you're engaged in. In January of 2020, I visited the University of Cape Town where you're based, and we attended the decolonial summer school where mostly African scholars strategized by putting decoloniality into practice. There was a Husha scholar who spoke about citational practices. Can you describe the ways that she exercised this through citation? Yeah, that, that was very interesting. But that also, that was also so an ongoing conversation that has been happening so in my department. So I think, you know, people have acknowledged, you know, and observed that there's this habit, I think, to have modules, like in institutions. So to have modules that are called decoloniality, but institutions don't often actually reflect on whether they are really dealing with the question of decoloniality in practice, in doing, in terms of also that it should also be in context. For example, you know, currently I am lecturing, it's called postgraduate students political psychology and this experience is that platform that you mentioned so the decolonial summer school as well as the hub for decolonial feminist psychologies in africa um, have been making me reflect on what it actually means to create you know a class that is for example liberatory or feminist you know or decolonial in practice Kola that you mentioned you know a lot of what she said i think was also coming from these conversations you know that had been had within departments 
learning, for example, in the context of South Africa, and I suppose, you know, learning for Black or people of colour or Indigenous folks who are studying in westernized so institutions or in the context where, for example, whiteness, including patriarchy or heteronormative, actually continues to maintain inequality and racism, learning cannot be separate from healing. Thinking about citation is also part of that kind of healing process. And I think what this woman spoke about was that we need to take notice of whose work is actually being cited you know, and whose work is being excluded, whose work is being considered as being valid and you know, whose work is being you know, considered as being good enough to cite. And then also even beyond that about, you know, actually whose work is being accepted in what journal. She encouraged us to think much more strongly about that. So to encourage our students that they should adopt what she called, I think, a 4-3-2-1 model. So this model tends to using, for example, 40% of Black academics who are based on the African continent, um, using 30% scholars or so of references of Black people who are in the diaspora, um, in 20% of people of colour who are anywhere else in the world, from other countries and other parts of the world. And then 10% of white European. The first time I heard about that, I was like, wow, this is really incredible. So she encouraged us to adopt this model and to implement this model. But of course, you know, it's been acknowledged and highlighted that it takes incredible work. That's going to include also actively, you know, decolonizing libraries and then maybe as teachers actually searching for some of these references and papers and, you know, different forms so in different systems of knowledge and actually physically taking them to the library ourselves so that we can also then encourage our students to go and read them and cite them. And she also spoke about this need of actually maybe creating our own journals as well as decolonizing search engines. Because also, you know, when you go online, even if when you know that there are certain papers that have been written, you know, by people of color, you know, or black people, often you don't find them on certain search engines. So she really encouraged us to be doing, to be actively doing the work ourselves, you know, as teachers and academics, before we also then ask, you know, the students, you know, to do the work as well. I can really see a lot of this work sort of kind of happening within my own department. For example, two professors in my department, Professor Shosa Kesi, and also my supervisor, who is Professor Floretta Bunzaya, they deliberately cite and recommend, um, and sometimes actually only and mostly people of color and black references from the continent as well as, you know, from the Americas, you know, in other parts of the world. Only. For me, it, it was never heard of. You know, I'd never really come across that. And um, they mm. have also taken on, you know, they edit, so they edit a journal, which is called Psychology in Society. And this is a peer-reviewed journal, which was formed in 1983. It is a vehicle for critical and apartheid and anti-apartheid stance, you know, in psychology. There's a lot of people who are not just talking about this, like, you know, in theory, but in practice, edging us and really, really taking us to task to actively do this work before we even ask our students as well to go on and do the work as well. You come from such a creative family and your artistic work has engaged in ancestral memory and healing. I first saw your art performance in Berlin at the KW Institute in Mitte in 2018 for Isaiah Lopez's curatorial work, A History of Remembering, where you engaged in a ritual to honor your grandmother. Can you describe how you came to learn about the ritual and can you indicate how meaningful ancestral work is part of your healing practice? 
that ceremony was, you know, honoring, was remembering my grandmother, who goes by the name Maminje, as well as my grandfather, who who is dead, called Tanyanyewa. And I touted that ceremony, you know, which actually translates to, if we're not careful, memories tend to dust or they are stolen. So really, I arrived to this ceremony because my paternal grandfather, Vatanyanyewa, was actually a renowned traditional healer or in the Shona term, might be called Nganga. It was a journey actually before I arrived also to the realization that I'd inherited, you know, this ancestral memory and healing ability. Although my ability doesn't look the same like his at all, so my ability, you know, it looks quite different from his. But for a while, you know, I was really hesitant and I suppose you could say I was really driven by fear to explore what this journey might really entail for me. So for me, it was about, you know, taking guidance and mentorship from other traditional healers and sangomas who took me under their wing that I came to realize that actually with psychology, I'd already begun this journey and I've been historically drawn to ancestral ways of knowing and in the traditional ways of healing. And I've already even started using some of this actually, you know, um, alongside the kind of psychological you know, modalities that I was applying, even though they were Western, you know, but I was also really using all the sort of kind of alternative ways to psychology as well. So in my culture, ancestors are very important. And I think by healing our ancestral lineage, we also heal ourselves and we also heal our families. We also heal society. We heal the earth as well. Mm. So I feel that, you know, for me, it's really important to honor the ancestors through these traditional um, ceremonies and the practices as well. And generally, the history and culture of the Shona people is such that we believe that we can communicate with the spirits of ancestors. We, We don't necessarily worship ancestors, but we ask them to mediate and convey, you know, some petitions on our behalf. So the ritual that I engaged with, you know, at KW Institute, you know, in Berlin for History of Remembering, which was curated by Isaiah Lopez as part of the 10th Berlin by now, was, you know, was actually one such ceremony of communicating, conjuring up ancestral spirits. Because, you know, the good ones, of course, for me, you know, those kind of ceremonies are intentional and often do them for black and people of color. I'm not sure how this journey will unravel while I'm here, but I'm definitely happy to be in South Africa where traditional ways of healing are officially recognized and widely recognized and practiced along psychology, for example. So recently, I've been doing a lot of work on trauma and on collective healing, drawing from these ancestral ways of knowing and actually even working alongside some of the Sangomas as well as the traditional healers here as well. While a lot of this practice comes naturally for me, I'm really excited to see how in practice, if we're kind of moving forward, like how in practice and theory, my use of psychology, Western psychology, but then also African psychology, you know, when coupled with, with ancestral ways of healing can actually look like um, in the future, especially when we're working through issues around inherited trauma, also looking at the trauma that has been placed on the earth, for example, you know, as well as intergenerational trauma as well. Thank you for describing the labor and strength that comes from constructing an intentional healing practice, especially as it is a dynamic process that is invoking the past for the sake of moving more comfortably in the present and future. Speaking of the present, what are you listening to and who's giving you inspiration? So at the moment, I've been doing a number of rituals, you know, by myself at home, you know, just to keep me grounded. And I've been a lot in 
silence. So, so I've been drawing. So I'm, I'm really, you know, inspired a lot by this woman. I think I've mentioned it before. Zimbabwean woman called Mbuya Nehanda. And um, her full name, Nehanda Charwe Nyakasikana, also known as Mbuya Nehanda. And she was a Shikiro. And a Shikiro in English means you know, a spirit medium. You know, she was a spirit medium of the Shona people. And she was such a powerful and respected ancestral spirit. And I've always felt like, you know, she's always been part of my life in one way or the other. And I really draw wisdom and strength from her. So this is a woman who was one of the leaders of a revolt, a really well-known revolt called Chimurenga War, which was you know, a revolt against the British um, colonialists. And um, she was strongly committed to upholding traditional Shona culture. So the colonialists were really scared of her, that they handed her down and hung it publicly. Um, but history actually says that there were two unsuccessful attempts that were made to hang her. And then it was only on the third attempt that they, you know, that they succeeded. And then as she was dying, she actually said, my bones will rise again. So this is a woman whose words, you know, whose last dying words, but then also whose legacy, she upheld traditional Shona culture, but also the way that she fought and resisted, you know, colonial rule. I find it so inspiring. So often, you know, when I'm not maybe feeling a little bit down or things are not going so well, particularly right now in this period, you know, of tragedy and grief, you know, and isolation, I often look to her, you know, in my moments of ritual. But outside of that, I've also been listening to voice notes a lot, you know, and just being in genuinely supportive union and community with other folks who are, you know, in the USA, you know, in Europe, in Zimbabwe, in South Africa, you know, in the UK. So for me, you know, listening to these um, voices of comradeship and hearing from their voices, you know, how these folks, you know, really care for me, how they care for their communities, you know, how they love me and how they love their communities, you know, and, you know, all this sort of like, you know, solidarity work that they currently doing and being at the receiving end of that has also continuously been beautiful and then of course you know I am on the continent of Africa I've been here now for a year being surrounded by incredible colleagues who I'm learning all these new things from as well as all these comrades who are doing all this incredible work that I'm also learning from and then as well as just being spiritually as well as physically just surrounded by water and being able to wake up you know to the view of the table mountain and and just having my house plants and they're growing and I'm going to be having having 60 plus houseplants soon and you know and I draw a lot of wisdom from all of these things and I draw a lot of my energy from all of this and I think it's you know it's a number of all of those things put together that really kind of allows me to thrive. Thank you Sky for providing us such wonderful insight about collectivity and community. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I feel really really humbled. I'm always you know admire I'm, I'm, I'm such a huge admirer of your work. You know, mm-hmm. so to have been asked and to be part of, of the podcast, um, yeah, feels really incredible. Oh. Thank you. Yeah. I feel yeah. seen. This episode featured socially distant voices based in South Africa and Germany. My name is Edna Bonhomme and you're listening to the Decolonization Action Podcast. During season two, we'll occasionally provide coronavirus-related perspectives featuring decolonial activists, scientists, historians, migrant scholars, and more interspersed with decolonial episodes that take a break from the current pandemic. 
I would like to express my gratitude to Christina Comer for her assistance in editing and production. As always, there's a list of references and a bibliography in the show notes. To learn more about the episode or to find out more information about the people and events referenced, please visit www.decolonizationinaction.com. You can also visit the Max Planck Institute for History of Science website where there's more information about our show notes and transcripts. If you like what you hear, please rate, comment, and share our episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Thank you for joining us and please stay safe and merry.